news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's guest is the author of the best-selling Be Frank With Me, a finalist for the American Booksellers Association Best Debut Novel Award. She grew up on a farm in Tennessee before moving to New York City, where she worked at Mademoiselle and Glamour magazines. She now lives in Los Angeles with her comedy writer husband, and their two children. It's my pleasure to welcome Julia Claiborne Johnson. So Julia, take us through your journey to publication, everything from the beginning through to where you are now. Yeah, what happened was like when I was a really young person, if you can imagine, yeah, the horseless carriage had just been invented. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I'm going to be a famous writer. And I went to work at Mademoiselle Magazine. I worked in the fiction department. And I had to read 10,000 manuscripts a year to find 12 that we could publish for our short story every month. And it was really hard. And it was a good lesson for me because I realized that, like, just because you can write a good sentence doesn't mean you can write a good story. And, um, you know, some people who are good at stories can't write a good sentence. And then there's some people who can't write at all. And if you don't have a story to tell, when you're going in, you shouldn't write because it's just going to however beautiful the sentences are, it's going to bore people stiff. So I decided, well, forget that. I'm going to be a magazine writer. And I did that for many years. And then I had children. 
which is a lesson in itself. And um, when I was 50 years old, um, my daughter had to read To Kill a Mockingbird for school. And I thought, oh, well, I'll get it for her. And then she lost it. And then so I thought, well, I'll get another one and we'll read it at the same time. And then we'll have really, you know, touching, insightful conversations about it. Well, that didn't happen. But I hadn't read To Kill a Mockingbird since I was 13. And so when I read it again, and it was a very different time, you know, when I read it this time. And I was like, oh, Boo Radley must be on the autism spectrum, which is not something people thought about back then that I knew of. So my very next thought, because I had two children, was, well, it's a lot easier to write that character than it would be to raise him. And I thought, oh, that's kind of an interesting idea for a book. You know what? I'm going to write that book. (sighs) And so then, then I started writing it. And it was, I wouldn't say fun, but it was very gratifying because you can make it turn out the way you wanted it to, which you can't do in life, I have found. <laughs> so, yeah. So I wrote it in secret. It took me five years to write it. Why in secret? Just because like, well, you know, I don't live in New York, so it wouldn't be quite as embarrassing. But, you know, like everybody on earth is writing a novel in New York here. And I live in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, it would be a screenplay. But I was just like, you know what? Nobody needs to know. This is, you know, I'm an old broad. What the hell? Why, you know, why? I don't need to drag this out. Oh, you know, I'm right. And also, Bianca, I don't know if you have found this, but the people who talk about the fact that they're writing a novel almost never actually write it. So I was keeping it to myself and I finished it, you know, and during the summer when the kids were out of school, I couldn't work on it and vacations and stuff. And so, but I would drive all over LA because there's a lot of driving involved and, and I could think about it, which was super helpful you know, as it turned out. So I would have these long vacations from it. Anyway, I finished it on a Wednesday night. And then um, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find out who the agent of my favorite writer is. And it was uh, Ann Patchett in the book. I love Bel Canto. It's a great book. I Googled and found out the name of her agent. And I wrote her a letter and I emailed it to her and I went to bed. And the next morning I was up at six to get the kids ready to go to school. And she had written me back already. And I was like, well, what's, what's happening here? And so she's like, I'd like to see your novel. And so call me as soon as you can. Cause I texted her. I said, I'm, I'm taking my children to school. So I called her and I said, um, I uh, just finished it last night. And there are a lot of typos in it. And it's a rough draft. Cause I thought it, she would have it for like six months, the letter before she responded to it. So I sent it to her. She said, I want to see it anyway. I sent it to her. And then um, that was Thursday. And then on Friday, Hurricane Sandy hit New York city. Oh my God. What if her iPad runs out of power? <laughs> And meanwhile, people are drowning, Bianca, and their houses are washing out to sea. And I'm very worried that her iPad's going to run out of power. So anyway, then that, I think it was the following Wednesday, and this is like seven days after I've been typed the end. She's like, I've read your manuscript. I love your book. If you'll have me, I'd like to represent you. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And she said, I'm going to send it out tomorrow. Buckle your seatbelts. It's going to sell in a week. And, I, and so this was stunning. So, but it, so she didn't feel like it needed any kind of revisions or anything like that. Hang on. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm just gobsmacked. It's an unbelievable story. So then I was like, okay, whatever. Because she figured, I guess she figured people would see, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. We'll just buy it. Nobody bought it. <laughs> so, but that was okay because I would have died of shock. And then my husband would have been a widower, although he would have married again instantly because he is so cute and the funniest man alive. But anyway, so I rewrote it. And it took two years to rewrite because, you know, I was bit, I had a little kid. They weren't that little, but they were smallish. They were still demanding of my time. And I rewrote it and she sent it out and then it really did sell in a week. So that was my book one. Okay. 
this is a horrible situation to put yourself in for book two, because I don't know if you know this, but I suspect you might. It is very difficult to write that second novel because you have expectations on you. Because the first one, nobody knew I was writing it. And the second one, people are like, the first thing they'd say instead of hello is like, hey, you write me a book, how's it going? And I'd just be like, don't ask me, you know. But I had what I thought was a good idea because... Um, in real life during the depression in the 1930s my father had a job working as a divorced cowboy on a dude ranch outside of reno where you'd go you could get a divorce in six weeks if you went and lived on one of these ranches and established nevada residency and then that way you were a citizen and they could let you off so that was a quickie divorce in those days and i know very little about it otherwise but i always thought it was really hilarious and particularly once i grew up and realized oh everybody's father did not do this and I, but I wasn't interested enough in it before he died. Cause if he were still alive, he'd be 104. He was an older father. So I was his, his, uh, my mother was his second wife, but I'd always kind of been thinking about that. So I was like, well, that's what I'm going to write my second novel about. The first novel was, um, in first person the first person narrator. So I thought, oh, I'm going to grow and stretch as a novelist because I am super brilliant. Because I don't know <laughs> this, but <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I wrote half the book and I sent it to my editor and she sent it back and she said, well, I don't know. She said, this one, you know, you're all like voice and throwaway jokes. And this third person is not working for you. So no. And I was like, oh, geez. So I started all over again and I wrote half the novel and um, I sent it to her. And, you know, this has happened. The entire experience of this was three years from start to finish because my kids were bigger. They needed me less. And, uh, you know, I was a professional writer. And so I sent her the second version and she said, I love the prologue. I hate the rest of it. <laughs> oh my God. But the prologue, Bianca, the prologue was six pages long. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> but she bought it based on the six pages. She didn't pay a lot of money for it, you know, considering how much a brilliant writer such as myself was worth. But it was a pig and a poke. I mean, she didn't know what she was going to get. So, and I don't even remember what was different about the second version because it must have been forgettable because I don't remember it at all. Aside from those six pages. So the six pages was a jumping off page, the jumping off spot. And so then I rewrote it again. And what I learned to my dismay, it's in second person. I thought it was in first person but he's telling the story to somebody and if you tell a book to a you it's second person even though he hardly ever says you i feel like it's a just for the the listeners i feel like it's kind of a hybrid oh. because he refers to himself a lot as you know like the i oh. as well but he is telling the story to somebody and i won't ruin it for for everybody out there as to who he's telling the story to but it becomes like kind of a hybrid of i and you Here's the thing, but I didn't realize it was second person. And she's like, yeah, it's, it's second person. But so in my mind, I was always going to write it in first person. So I thought for the whole book and then the last chapter when you, because there's information he doesn't have and he's going to find out that that missing, those missing pieces. And that was going to be third person. So my editor, who is a brilliant genius, a real brilliant genius, um, was like, you know, it has to be second person all the way through. So that last chapter has to be in second person. So there's no way for him to know the stuff he has to find out. So it was not a fun experience. I wrote the end maybe 5,000 times. And the last version I wrote of the end, I uh, I had written several 
and it was the coronavirus had started. So my children had been sent home from college and I was never alone in my house anywhere ever. And so I had written, I had turned in yet another version of the last chapter and I was sitting at the kitchen table. And I was like, hey, wait a minute. I'm alone in here. And so I started crying because I was like, I just, I can't write it again. I cannot write it again. I don't have it in me. And my daughter comes breezing into the kitchen and she's like, mama, are you crying? And I was like, no, no, my eyes are just really tired. She's like, no, no, it's okay. If you're crying, it's all right. And I said, well, if you want to know the truth, and she's like, oh no, I don't want to hear what it's about. So I had to laugh and then the next day my editor wrote me and she said, I love the new ending. So thank God. But there were points when I was writing that book where I just thought, I'll never finish it. I'll just never finish it. And you know, if I stepped out into the street and got hit by a car, like any accident that could have happened to me, I'd think, but then I don't have to finish my novel. <laughs> <laughs> Something that resonates so much with me is the fact that, you know, you write your first novel and everyone tells you that your first novel should be so difficult because you don't know what you're doing. You're finding your way into novel writing, you learning as you're going along. So I fully expected my second book to be so much easier to write than the first. No, 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 no. I thought it was a million times harder because there's expectations. Because if you didn't finish the first one, who would be the wiser? You know, I guess if I'd sold it ahead of time and had an advance that I had to give back that would be awfully embarrassing but man that second one almost killed me and my editor the brilliant genius was like look a lot of my writers are going through this right now they're writing second books they all are struggling it is the hardest book you'll ever write because the first book you've kind of been writing your whole life like you think about it like and so this is funny my agent has an adult daughter who lived with us for a while when she moved to California she went to work at a talent agency out here so I said let her stay with us at first because Los Angeles is so sprawling and she'll get some apartment that she thinks is close to work, but it's not close to work. And she'll think it's a nice neighborhood, but it's a horrible neighborhood. So let her live with me for a while and then she can find a place to live. So she was my fake daughter and it was the greatest. She loved me. She thought all my stories were funny because she had heard none of them. She read the book and and the advanced copy. And so she, but she already lived somewhere else by then. So she came in to our house because she comes, well, she doesn't now, but she used to come to our house every week, once a week for dinner so we could keep up. She threw the, the advanced copy down on the table and she said, well... All your jokes are in this one. I don't know what's going to be in the second one. (laughs) And I was like, they had to be in this one because there might have been no second one. What I'm especially interested in was you finding your way into the character's voice. Because as the book is now, Better Luck Next Time, Ward has such a singular voice. Mm-hmm. He um, He's speaking to somebody who the reader doesn't know who it is that he's relaying this tale to. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I started the book and realized that this is what you were doing, I thought to myself, oh, gosh, is this going to work? Because everything else essentially becomes backstory. As opposed to us just being in the moment, we know that he's, you know, quite old in the future and he's remembering back on his life. And so I was thinking that would really slow down the momentum, take away the immediacy of what was happening. But that didn't happen at all, which was absolutely amazing. So finding your way into that voice, because I tell all my writing students that it's a process of trial and error, you know, and like Mm -hmm. you said, you started off in the third person then you went to you know you had the prologue was the prologue in the second person and that's why your editor loved the prologue yes it was in the second person it's the pro- right. it's more or less the same prologue it's a little bit different but uh and it used to start with the joke which i really like but she's like that's a hard joke to start on because people will get the wrong idea because it used to 
be, you know, some men are born gigolos, but others have it thrust upon them. But now there's a paragraph in front of that. I mean, you're going to find that out anyway. But, you know, she was like, that's a little harsh to start with. That's not, but yes, it's just. It, it made me laugh. So, but it's more or less the way it was. There's a line in there somewhere that says something like, uh, "You know, when you get to be old, things that happened to you yesterday start seeming more real than what's happening to you now." And I feel like that all the time. Like stuff that happened to me in the twenty, my twenties, it's like it just happened. If it happened last week, if it's what I had for breakfast today, can't help you. <laughs> And I think that's something that you were obviously trying to bring alive in this character was how vivid memories can be and how regrets from the past and things we didn't do and things we wanted to do and things that we wonder, had we taken that road, how our worlds would have worked mm-hmm. out. And and Ward is this kind of character. You know, there's kind of this point in the story where his story could have gone one or two ways. And he says throughout that he doesn't have regrets and that he, you know, the way his life has ended up he's very happy with the way his his life has ended up but it could have been very very different so was that something when you sat down to write that that was something that you wanted to tackle a person later in life looking back on their life and and trying to make sense of it yes because I should have said this part I didn't even think about it sort of how I mean I always loved the idea of my father's experience and this has is not his at all like all I know it's just the jumping off place I don't know what his was like I tried to find uh, some trace of him there in Reno at the historical society society nothing anyway a few months before that I had been talking to one of my friends who I have a delightful husband who is just the best he's so funny everything about him is magnificent he's my second husband my first husband was a nice man but not the right husband for me and one of my friends is married to somebody who is just as nice as Chris is fabulous guy and she said you know whether you're happy or not it doesn't depend on your career success it's on if you marry the right person because if you marry the right person you'll be happy and you can deal with anything other problems. But if you're unhappy at home, you're never really gonna be happy. And I was like, Oh, that's so true, because I hadn't thought about it. And I I couldn't stop thinking about how just that one choice alters everything. And my mother was my father's second wife. So if he hadn't, if he'd stuck it out with the first wife, I wouldn't exist. If I'd stuck it out with my first husband, my children wouldn't exist. And I probably would have slit my wrist or cut his throat one or the other. And he was a nice man. He was just not right. But it's just like, and the chances, because there's like a whole in this book, there's a whole gambling motif, because it really is such a gamble, because you don't go in knowing that you've made the right choice. And it's funny, because there's a speech in there where the woman who runs the ranch says, everybody goes in with their best, putting their best foot forward, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that page, page 45, or perhaps 47, Bianca, I wrote it for three months straight, all day long, typing all day, because I knew it was so important to the whole idea of the novel, and I couldn't get it right. It was just killing me. And I somehow managed to not give up. I don't know how. And one day it just like came and I was like, oh, thank God, there it is. Because that's the whole, that's the crux of the novel. You nailed that as well, because she's such an amazing character. Um, uh-huh. You know, so wise, everything that, that she said, like her outlook to life was absolutely amazing. But also the man that she was with, they were just such a perfect, perfect couple. And yet they're running this like divorce ranch. But I thought that, well, that's really nice because you need to think, well, there's a reason I'm going through this. Because if you were staying with somebody who was like, tore each other's heads off every day you'd be like i have never get married again so yeah they were the aspirational couple
powerful. I feel like the women who were at the ranch were kind of licking their wounds and then they could look at this couple and be like, mm -hmm. well, this is what I want. This is why I'm getting divorced to hopefully go out and find this kind of partnership. I know. And then if it works, oh my God, it's so amazing. So, and I'm almost glad, like I didn't particularly enjoy the whole experience of the first marriage, first divorce, but it made me appreciate the second, because I've been married to Chris for almost 30 years now. So, and it really made me just, every day I get up and think, oh my God, I got so lucky. I didn't even have to pay him to marry me either. So, but yeah, <laughs> I would, I totally would. So. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. 
To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Can we talk about the humor in the books? And I mean, obviously, just talking to you, you're a very funny person. This is why you've married a funny person as well. I find that funny people are attracted to each other, people with a really good sense of humor. Have you got advice for our listeners in terms of how to approach writing humor? Because something you said earlier has stuck with me in that, you know, your editor said, this is just a bunch of one-liners. You're good at voice and throwaway jokes. Because a throwaway joke, that's where all the funny stuff comes from. Well, for one thing, I will say this. When I went on tour with the first book, people would ask me all the time if my husband wrote my jokes. And I'd be like, excuse me. I too am funny. Yeah, he used to write for Beavis and Butthead. And um, one of the, my, which is, you may be too young to remember, but my great yeah. point of pride is I came up with a plot for one of the classic Beavis and Butthead things. It's called Tired, where they're just rolling down a hill inside a tire. I was like, that would be pretty funny. So it helps when you're writing humor if you have an exquisitely developed sense of the ridiculous and the ability to write, to laugh at yourself, which not everybody has. And I wonder if like all funny writers do. I have to think of that. I have to give this some thought. But um, like a lot of times when I would approach something that like a scene I was going to do, I'd be like, what would be the most hilarious and mortifying way this could happen? And so then I would write out a bunch of different things and just sit there and look at them. But, you know, I don't know. Is it like this with you? Like once you get started, it kind of takes over and it's like you're channeling it. Like it's like they're they're talking to me instead of me saying, this is what you're going to say. Oh, no, definitely. But sometimes you need to kind of beat them back because, uh-huh. you know, you especially in a book like this, you, this book wasn't as funny as your first book. Cause like you say, you got in all your jokes into your first book. That was really, really hilarious. This book, I feel like either your editor edited out a lot of your humor, which is what happened to me with my second book. I tried to put in as much humor into my second book as I had in my first. And my editor mm-hmm. just said, no, it's losing the poignancy. It's becoming mm-hmm. all about the jokes and we're not getting those sucker punch emotional moments. And I feel mm-hmm. like in this book, in Better Luck Next Time, there's some hilarious, hilarious moments that feel you can just picture them unfolding. They'd make an excellent movie or an excellent you know tv show and it's rumpy and it's very comedic uh and then there's these quieter moments that Mm -hmm. are you know the sucker punch moments so do you find that you have to kind of rein yourself in or is that something your editor helps you with i think she cut some jokes that i thought oh that's a really good joke but then i was like oh i think there can be too many jokes and my i mean you're talking to me you know i can't resist every opportunity to make a joke about something Frank was in the beginning of somebody's life, and this is a written by somebody who's, it's not written by, but it's about somebody who's at the end of their life. And my mother used to be a doctor, so a lot of it, it's, it's really, the character is her a lot, because with her compassion and everything and the way she was. And um, she was in, an, in a retirement home and has been for quite some time. She has dementia, so um, luckily she can't remember how long it's been since any of us have seen her because um, she, uh, you know, can't remember, <laughs> like me, I feel like she can't remember what happened yesterday. So she doesn't know we haven't been there in a long time. But anyway, back in her day, she was like the center of the community and she delivered thousands of babies and she took care of everybody. And like, and now to just be shuffled off to the side 
because she needs more care than any of us can give, you know, because she really needs somebody with her 24-7. So that, to me, seems very hard. So, and, you know, the guy in this book, our narrator, isn't really that old. He's in his 70s, but he has really bad spinal stenosis, which my mother's best friend in medical school also had. So he couldn't practice medicine anymore, and it just killed him that he couldn't do that. He also lived to be very old. So to me, that's just like so wrenching. So I think that's part of why the book isn't as funny, because it's a less funny situation to be in. So anyway, but it's it seems to me this book is super heartbreaking. But at the same time, there is hope and things that happen and it happened so that it's not just unremittingly sad. So there were moments that were really laugh out loud funny. I absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. For me, I'm a fan of the kind of book that can take you on a roller coaster of emotions. I like a book that, you know, one page you're kind of feeling it in your chest and you're trying to stop tears from falling. And then three pages later, you're laughing your ass off. Because to me, that is, that's the same as life, you know, and like this year has taught us that is the way it is. And if you don't have a damn sense of humor, I don't know how the hell you've gotten through this year. Oh, my God. Because there's so much awful stuff, but you have to laugh in between. And I feel like your book captured that part of life so utterly perfectly. But for me, it was more wondering about how, as a comedic writer, as someone who's so inherently funny, how you just temper that. Because, you know, I have students who try, who've written humor. And I mean, it's comedic timing, isn't it? Yeah, because you can't ram it down people start. And you know, it's funny, because my husband is a comedy writer, and they all say that um, the comedy is tragedy plus time. <laughs> and you're like, true words never spoken, because it's that old thing about someday we're going to laugh about this. But you know, some things you never do quite laugh about. But you know, if you don't have a sense of humor, I don't know how you stand it. So I don't think I answered your question at all. <laughs> a boyfriend once many years ago who like just everything was a joke all the time just 24 7 and I was just like dude you gotta let it rest and it's when my editor did the final edit she cut out a lot of jokes and I was upset at first but then I was thinking about that guy I was like oh my god I would just want to say to him just give it a rest and so I was just like fine just take it out just take it out as long as the book's more than 70 pages long I guess it still qualifies a book and there were like maybe two things that I insisted on hanging on to. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure there must have been a couple. And it really did make a huge difference. It made it much more wrenching, like you said, because, you know, you could really see what I was after better because it was just like, you know, because how they say jokes are a defense mechanism. I was sort of trying to defend myself from how heartbreaking I found this book. Yeah. But I needed to just roll with it. So that's a hard lesson to learn. And I feel like that's exactly what I was doing with my first novel as well. That was incredibly difficult book for me to write. So I needed like the humor to balance it out and just keep going. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. writing is a form of therapy, you know, it's like just mm-hmm. suddenly sitting in front of a therapist and just letting it all out. And even worse, because other people are going to read it afterwards. It's not like it's just between, you know, you and your therapist. And your ex-boyfriend sounds like uh, Chandler on Friends. Exactly. Yeah. Jeez. So in terms of advice to new writers, because there's, there's so much emphasis put on young writers, I find, in the industry. All of these articles are, you know, writers under 30 or writers who are debuting novels at 27. So pressure gets put on new writers who feel like, oh my God, I haven't written my novel by the time I'm 30. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm not going to write this novel and it's too late for me to become a writer. So, I mean, you mm-hmm. it can be done. You published after you were 50. Is that right? How old yeah. did you when your debut came I out? Was, by the time uh, Be Frank With Me came out, I was 55. And I'll tell you something. There's a writer 
and you might not know her. She's British. Her name's well, she's dead now, so you don't know her personally. <laughs> her name's Mary Wesley, and um, she, her husband died, I think. Like she was like Mary, and and suddenly she had to support herself. So she's like, well, what am I going to do? I'll write some novels. So she wrote like between seventy and ninety. She wrote like six novels. One of them is called The Chamomile Lawn. They made a, a PBS series out of it. I've never seen it, but I know it exists. And I, the only one of her books I've read is The Chamomile Lawn. What was great about it was it's a it's people from childhood until their senescence. And because she had lived through all those parts, she understood what each part was like. And I think if you're 26 and you're trying to write a guy who's in his 70s, who's in a nursing home and has to get around with a walker, it's not going to sound right. But believe me, I know what it feels like to hurt when you stand up and, you know, and you've been around that more. And I think it's such a gift to not try to start to writing until you're as old as I am. I'm saying that because that's what I chose. But it's not like I did it on purpose, but I didn't have a story. I didn't feel like I had a story. And I think it's really hard on the really young people if they haven't really done a lot of living outside of the normal parameters of people who are writers. Like, what are they doing for material? And that's why I think a lot of them are super serious and like, you know, people are junkies and, you know, because you can understand that when you're 26. Or, you know, what it's really like, Bianca, you know how like there are a lot of like really handsome actors who sort of become like Alec Baldwin is one. He was so handsome when he was young, but he was never really that funny until he got old. Because the thing that people are like valuing you for doesn't matter anymore. And then you can let yourself go. And I think that really helps with your comedy. I don't know. I just thought about that. It sounds reasonable. (laughs) Let's go with it. Very wise. We're going with that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Same with voice, because by the time you're old, you have overheard a lot of other people's conversations. And when you're older, you don't, you're not as like caught up in yourself because you've had to have close contact with other people more. And so you, you have, I felt like I did, I had a better grasp on how other people talk. So I thought that was super helpful. So the bottom line is really just wait till you're old. Well, but you can right now, honey. You're <laughs> way more life experience. You know the stories that you're passionate about because that's also something mm-hmm. I tell my students. Don't just sit down and go, "Ooh, this sounds interesting. Let me start writing." It has to be something that's super compelling that that you feel passionate about that you want to spend three to five years with because otherwise oh you'll spend a year with it and just go, oh, God, no, I've, I'm sick of the story. I, I don't feel compelled to keep writing it. So I also find that the older we get, the more we know what issues are super important to us, the more we feel mm-hmm. we feel things so much more deeply the older we get as well. And I think that translates as well into writing. So all this to say to the readers out there who are in their 40s, who are in their 50s, who are in their 60s, remember that Delia Owens published uh, Where the Crawdads Sing in her 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's been the biggest publishing phenomenon of the last sort of decade. So uh, mm-hmm. there's no point at which you should give up or that or that you're too old. Just just keep at it. Is there any kind of takeaway, any, anything that you know, you've learned or any other advice that you'd like to share that you would have liked to know when you were on this journey earlier? I, I have a couple of things. One is uh, when I decided I was going to write that first novel, I was like, oh, I better teach myself how to write a novel. And I had read, a, I'd had a teacher once named Richard Yates who wrote Revolutionary Road and Easter Parade, a lot of super depressing novels. But I read his biography and he, when he was 13, he decided he wanted to be a writer. And so he typed the entire Great Gatsby just so he could internalize the rhythms of a novel. And I was like, oh, my God, that's such a good idea. So I didn't do that. But I got a notebook and I took my three favorite novels at the time. It was Bel Canto, 
um, I Capture the Castle. Have you ever read that? So good. And The Hunger Games, which is very well written. And I wrote down everything that happened on every page. And then that helped me sort of go, oh, this is how it goes. And this is how the pacing is. And the other thing I would say, which was very important, was um, I would read some novel and think, oh, this is such a lousy novel. How the heck did this novel get published? And then one day I went, wait a minute. I know how. They finished it. Step one. (laughs) If you don't finish it, it's never going to get published. And that was so valuable to me. I mean, I'm choking, but you just have to persevere. So I really think the ability to persevere almost matters more than talent because there's so many talented writers, brilliant, talented writers who cannot finish a book. So they might as well not be talented at all. So that's really the ability to just stick with it and not give up. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeCeLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. 
This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Lira agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.